This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith. And I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how have you been? I'm doing well. I have recovered from my first ever bout with COVID and our family. We had three quarters of the family all had it at once. So I think even as we were recording the last episode, I might have had COVID but didn't know it. So it was relatively mild and we did lots of staying away from other folks. So hopefully we didn't spread it around too much. Um, but hey, have either of you guys ever seen that movie, The Money Pit? <laughs> It's referencing the house that needs all the repairs. That's I have. I despise that movie, but go on. <laughs> well, that's been my life lately. So we had this great idea to renovate our basement. And while we were at it, we thought we'd check on things like water leakage, sewer pipes. We're having problems with our furnace right now. So my part-time job is I'm managing three teams of contractors who are all working on various things at my house. But I'm grateful to have a roof over my head and the money to pay for such repairs. So I'm hanging in there. How about you guys? It's the dreaded end of the semester. Are you officially done yet? Almost, but uh, let's not talk about it. In the meantime, yeah, we can adjust your <laughs> title to be executive editor and general contractor. So that's exciting. Um, no, no, no COVID-19 here, no general construction that I'm aware of that I'm responsible for. So I think I've got the uh, the as Jesus says, I've chosen the better part in this topic. But as you say, it is, yeah, it's the end of the semester. It's officially over. And so at this point, the campus is quiet. Most of the students have gone to where they're going for the holiday and for the in-between semester break. I do enjoy the kind of stillness and silence that, the, that comes with the campus this time of year. Still some meetings, other work, odds and ends that need to be completed before the semester is officially over and before the calendar year is over is probably a better way to put it as well. But other than that, plugging along, I've got several projects I'm going to be working on in, in the interim and uh, before the next semester, and then getting ready for all the great events that the Center for Spirituality is putting on here at St. Mary's College in spring 2023, beginning in the end of January. So listeners, stay tuned and check out our schedule. David, speaking of academic schedules, what's up with you? So like you, I'm reaching the end of the semester and finishing things up and turning in grades. As I said in the last episode, it's been a really wonderful semester for thinking with my students, and I've really enjoyed that. And now I get to turn to writing projects and finishing some of those and starting new ones. And also, I've got a regular kind of bevy of media projects that I work on throughout the year. And so working on year-end wrap-ups for the Commonweal Magazine podcast, continuing my work with the Deacons podcast, also with, with Freedom Road podcast. So if you're unfamiliar with these other shows and you're looking for things 
to listen to during our few weeks of hiatus before we come back with season 12. I recommend all of those shows, the Commonweal podcast and the Deacon's Pod and the Freedom Road podcast. I'm not a voice on them, but I love the content and getting to work with that every couple of weeks because I learn so much from the conversations that happen there. I'm also in a weird state of mourning, and let me explain that. So when I was in high school, I had a dear friend by the name of Jill Davis, and she, over the years, has introduced me to a bunch of really wonderful music. And one of the bands that she introduced me to was an English band from the 70s and 80s called The Specials. It's a ska band. And over the last couple of days, Terry Hall, the lead singer of The Specials, passed away. And so I have no relationship with this person other than I'm a big fan of their music. And so I'm just I'm feeling that hard because not only was it good music, but they also just took really good moral stances on anti-racism and other things like that. So, you know, when a light like that goes out, you feel it. And so I've been sitting with that over the last day or so as I got the news. And again, no, no connection. And it's not like any great personal loss other than just I enjoyed their music and there's not going to be any more of that particular arrangement of the band. And so just feeling that. And so this is a time of year where the days get dark fast and sometimes things hit you hard in unexpected ways. And maybe Terry Hall's passing is allowing me to access the grief of some other more dear losses that I've had over the last few months. Some friends that have passed away that I've mentioned, but have been dealing with, but not really dealing with, if you understand how that goes. <laughs> so, but other than that, I'm really looking forward to a few weeks off to get a chance to clean the house and work on some writing projects and catch up with family and friends and all of that. So it's a good it's a good season. And later in the program, we're all three of us going to be talking about what we're looking forward to in the new year, what we're expecting from Christmas, touching on some of the highlights from the past year. So that's yet to come. But on the way to that, we're going to be looking at the most recent hearing from the January 6th committee and also the recent dismissal from the priesthood of Frank Pavone. So all that is coming up here on The Francis Effect. Please stay with us. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy Thursday at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dull. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Earlier this week, on Monday, December 19th, the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol held its 10th and final public hearing. Over the past 17 months, the January 6th committee has examined video footage, deposed witnesses, and collected other evidence about the attack itself as well as the alleged conspiracy that led to the attack. The committee gathered these threads into a coherent narrative about the planning, execution, and principal actors alleged to be behind the storming of the Capitol. The committee has presented aspects of this narrative through its public hearings, often featuring never-before-seen video footage, as well as some very chilling testimony from staffers and advisors who were in the White House with the president and his staff during the attack. The hearing this past Monday served as a summary of all these previous hearings, as well as a prelude to the forthcoming report of the committee, which is scheduled to be released very soon. The committee released a summary of the report concurrent with the hearing on Monday, and the message of both were very clear. The core allegation that President Donald Trump himself was at the heart of the January 6th events. As CNN put it, quote, all roads lead to Trump, unquote. The committee also voted to make criminal referrals to the Justice Department for former President Donald Trump and lawyer John Eastman. Trump was referred under four criminal statutes that included obstructing an official proceeding, making false statements, defrauding the United States, and inciting an insurrection. The panel also referred four Republican members of Congress to the House Ethics Committee for ignoring its subpoenas. David, like many of us, you've been watching these hearings over the past few months. What did we learn on Monday that we haven't seen before? And what would you highlight as some of the key takeaways? 
Well, first and foremost, the thing that stood out the most to me was a testimony from Hope Hicks, who was a White House insider that we haven't seen before. And there was some question about to whom exactly Hope Hicks was referring, but the overall weight of it was that many insiders had communicated clearly to to former President Trump that he needed to make a statement that any gathering or protest needed to be nonviolent, and Trump refused to do it. And so that, to me, was one of the most glaring revelations to come out of this most recent hearing. The notion or the narrative that somehow Donald Trump was swept up in events or was unable or unwittingly connected to all of the violence that unfolded, it just doesn't seem to fit with the facts. Everyone who was in a position to be advising former President Trump about what was going to be happening or what was happening advised former President Trump clearly. Former President Trump chose to sit in silence and watch the events unfold. And so this speaks to what CNN was saying about this sort of notion that all roads lead to Trump. It really gives us a circle of not only circumstantial, but increasingly concrete evidence that former President Trump was informed and perhaps even involved in the unfolding events of that day. I haven't had a chance to look at either the summary report or, of course, the full report, which is still forthcoming. But from listening to commentators talking about the summary report, it seems as if they're really wanting to keep the spotlight central on former President Trump. I think for a number of reasons, but especially to try and make sure that the narrative doesn't shift from his complicity, his involvement in all of this. It was really striking to watch the proceedings and some of the news coverage that followed. I was struck by Liz Cheney's comment that this was, she used the term, a moral failure, an utter moral failure on the part of the president. And sometimes I still can't even believe that We had the person in the highest office in the land literally in being involved in egging on, uh, being responsible for this, you know, that's basically sedition. And my concern is that especially as the House membership changes in the new year because of the midterm election, that this will get dropped and even more so that it will end up as part of the amnesia we seem to have as a country about things like this, these negative things that are part of our history. And I think that would be a problem because to forget something is to not make the changes necessary that it doesn't happen again. I know there's a lot of debate about whether prosecuting Trump would be effective or not, whether it would be successful or not. But I think we can say as Catholics and seeing we can agree that there was a moral failure here, not just strategically, but in encouraging, allowing, inciting violence in which people were injured and killed. It seems to me there there are a lot of pragmatic questions that make sense to me in theory and in in principle, but in practice are a bit challenging. So you'll hear folks say like, well, we've never in the history of the United States charged a former president or a sitting president. There are concerns as well about, you know, what are his followers going to do or say or his allies in places like Congress. And all of these things are being weighed, I'm sure, by the Justice Department. There's now an independent, what do they call that, independent prosecutor, investigator who's uh, who's on the case. And so it, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But I, at the core, one of the things I would like to see is some accountability because the question that the select committee raised time and again is how does how do we prevent something like this, right? So their work was to help research and to uncover what exactly did happen. But its conclusion ought to be, let's make sure this doesn't happen again. And I think as long as somebody who is responsible for this kind of violence and um, division and all the rest, as former President Trump seems to have been, who could shield himself by just declaring himself a candidate for the next election or just by virtue of formerly holding an office, not be held accountable. I think that's a precedent I don't really want to see. So to me, it's, it's I realize there are very few good or easy or comfortable options here. But I'd rather see the Justice Department pursue this, even if there are these consequential risks that come with that. Well, and I just want to say all three of us have some kind of connection to Illinois. And listeners will know that many of our past governors from Illinois have spent time in prison. And a lot of people point to that to say Illinois is so corrupt, Illinois, you know. And, and granted, we have corruption up and down the machine in Illinois politics. 
But I actually really love the fact that a bunch of our governors have gone to jail because that means that even if they're corrupt, they're being held accountable when the evidence is there. And I really like that idea of holding politicians accountable when they use public office for access or for influence that is improper. And there's nothing more improper than trying to interfere with the peaceful transfer of power in government. And so I really like the idea of holding former President Trump accountable as I would feel right and good about holding a former Democrat accountable or any politician in the highest offices in the land and the advisors of those politicians who would say things like, you've got a shot here to actually overturn this process. Why don't you take the shot? One of the the ringing moments for me in looking at the summary that the January 6th committee did earlier this week was that one point, and I forget who said it, but he basically turned to another staffer and said, you now need to hire the best possible criminal defense lawyer because what you have just done puts you in a position where you are going to be held accountable, not only by history, but by the law. I really like that. And I would like to see more of that. I hope that these referrals to the Justice Department don't vaporize and vanish into thin air. I hope that they actually gain traction on the ground and start allowing for the real bringing of charges, not only against those around the former president, but also to the extent that the evidence leads there to the former president himself. So I love that spin on being an Illinoisan with many of our former governors having uh, served time. I would say I think the practical concerns are real, and you raised a couple of them. Dan, our columnist, Michael Sean Winters, in his column this week raises another, which is he doesn't think it's very possible for any jury not to include at least one Trump supporter who would not vote to convict. And then if he is charged but not convicted, how he will use that to claim exoneration. But I don't think that the legal system can operate that way, thinking ahead to what might happen or how someone might use the process. To, I, I think he's going to spin things no matter what happens. And so this idea that somehow we should like kowtow to what he might do is just what's happened his whole life. He's always been able to escape the consequences of his actions. Somebody else always pays literally or figuratively for the things that he's done. And it really does send a terrible message, not just about what people can do if they're president, but like to everyone, that there are no consequences when you don't pay your bills or not pay your workers or do all kinds of illegal or immoral things in running your business or running the country. And we should point out that this in the last 10 days or so, there have been some pretty significant losses to the Trump organization on exactly that front, where not former President Trump himself, but Trump's business interests have been held accountable in the in the New York court system. And and I think that that's significant as well. There are consequences that are beginning to fall into place, both in terms of the organizational structure around Donald Trump, but also perhaps towards Donald Trump, the individual. I think it's also interesting. And the committee, the House committee made this point, or at least some members did, that hundreds of people have already been held accountable for their actions. Those who invaded the Capitol on January 6th, those who have committed crimes of violence and trespass and the like. And so what does it say that the one at the top who's who instigated this whole operation isn't even charged? I think there's a justice issue, pun intended, that needs to be considered here. We can also look to the history of the presidency, and I'm thinking particularly of the Iran-Contra affair around President Ronald Reagan. And one of the mechanisms that insulated President Reagan was this notion of plausible deniability, the notion that somehow people were acting without President Reagan's express consent or with full information to the president. So let's spin this out in two ways. If there is an argument to be made for plausible deniability, that means that we had an intense intelligence failure on January 6th and leading up to it, because as has been shown by the hearings, there is ample evidence that there was information and informants giving information about these plans to storm the Capitol. But let's say instead that there is no plausible deniability, and in fact that in spite of and despite those warnings, former President Trump chose to go in this direction anyway. Well, 
no matter how you spin it, it doesn't look good for the presidency and the legacy of Donald Trump. And then there's that political question that then flows from that is how damaged is he from this and everything else? And should he still be the Republican candidate for the next presidential election? He used January 6th at the time to fundraise and bring in millions of dollars to his personal campaign coffers. And my sense is he'll use this again to reach out to his supporters, who it seems like nothing will convince them that he's not an upstanding, reputable guy. I think more and more Republicans are seeing how much he hurts the party and the party's chances of maintaining or gaining any power, given how things went in the midterms. But it doesn't seem like the party is able to stop him. Well, and there will always be a certain percentage of people who will support him no matter what. I think what one of the lessons perhaps of the midterms is it's not definitive. It's not going to give us a clear sight of what would happen. But I think the fact that nearly all, like to a person, of the people that Donald Trump supported who were election you know, the the big lie supporters or the election deniers or the folks who were the most radical were rejected by the voting public. And so that was a big talk of the town last month in November when pundits were saying after the fact, well, all these folks that Trump endorsed did not do well. Most in most cases were not elected. So maybe that says something, too, about the electorate. The the fear is that there's going to be this percentage of Republicans who are going to support Trump no matter what. But maybe that is a much smaller number now than a lot of people had considered. Certainly, that that helps explain some of the misnarrative going into the midterm elections in November of 2022. We could only hope that's true. We'll have to see going forward. I think it's going to be interesting to see, too, who the nominee is. I It still looks like it's going to be President Biden who's going to run again. I, I find that I know this isn't directly related to the January 6th hearing. You know, on the topic of the viability of somebody like Donald Trump to be a serious contender in the Republican primary and then in the general election, I think it's really going to depend on who the two candidates are or who the candidates both in the primary are and then in the general election. Do you, do you two have thoughts about that at this stage of the game? I know we're two years out still. But. I very much like the idea that politics is a realm of surprise and not of assured futures. So I like the idea that even if it looks like there's a trajectory towards certain candidates right now, events might happen to upset that. Like I I hold out tremendous hope for an actual democratic process that will actually vet candidates and bring the best possible candidates. And maybe I'm naive in that, but that's what I'm holding out for. And that's my polite way of saying that I would like to see a different slate of candidates at the top of both parties. And in fact, at all parties than what we're getting right now, two years out. I love that idealism, David. I'm going to hold on to that and say, I'm not sure. I mean, I have concerns about whether that process will work in a way that's what's best for the country. That seems like a great topic to talk about in our third segment or in the new year. So we'll be returning to these political questions for sure in the future. So we'll take a short break and then be back with our next segment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Father Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Last weekend, news outlets reported that the Catholic priest who headed the anti-abortion group Priests for Life had been dismissed from the priesthood. The former, Father Frank Pavone, had for years defied requests from the Vatican and from multiple U.S. bishops to stop engaging in political advocacy inconsistent with his role as a member of the Catholic clergy. Pavone had served as an advisory board member of the campaign group Catholics for Trump and famously released a video in 2016 in which he placed the body of an aborted fetus on an altar, urging Catholics not to vote for Hillary Clinton. During the 2020 election, he released multiple videos of himself wearing clerical garb and a red MAGA hat, and later denied the election results, spreading the lie that Joe Biden did not lawfully win the presidency. The Vatican informed Pavone, who is 63, of his dismissal from the priesthood on November 9th, and said the decision cannot be appealed. The dicastery for clergy 
said he had been found guilty in canonical proceedings of, quote, blasphemous communications on social media, unquote, and of, quote, persistent disobedience, unquote, of his bishop. It also noted that Priests for Life is not a Catholic organization and would have to decide the nature of Pavone's relationship to it, given that he is no longer a Catholic priest. Pavone was ordained for the New York Archdiocese in 1988, but later transferred to the Diocese of Amarillo, Texas in 2005. Over the years, he repeatedly clashed with Amarillo Bishop Patrick Zurich, who in 2011 barred Pavone from priestly ministry outside the diocese and ordered him to return to his diocese. Pavone did not comply and currently is living and working in Florida. Heidi, NCR had the story of Pavone's dismissal from the priesthood over the weekend. What has been the reaction since then? Well, the reaction since the story broke has almost been more interesting than the story. I was awoken on Sunday morning with the news from our Vatican reporter that this had happened, I think, on Saturday night. So the letter obviously came earlier this fall, but was just finally released in part because the nuncio was informing the U.S. bishops that this had happened. There have been a number of reactions, and I think they all confirm what we already know about our church and its polarization. The first reaction from Frank Pavone himself was to go to social media and where he is still wearing his Make America Great hat with his clerical garb and still identifying as a Catholic priest and to basically paint himself as a victim here saying, quote, if you defend the unborn, you will be treated like them. The only difference is that that when we are, quote, aborted, we continue to speak loud and clear. So I think that was a pretty interesting reaction from someone who has been reprimanded. He later then did longer interviews. And and when I checked for an update this morning on Tuesday, the day that we're recording this, He's all over social media defending himself and talking about how he's going to go forward with his work. I was also really shocked to see a response from a U.S. bishop immediately on Sunday. It won't surprise you that Bishop Strickland from Tyler, Texas, tweeted calling Pavone's removal from the priesthood a blasphemy. So that was pretty shocking, although maybe we shouldn't be shocked by what Bishop Strickland does these days. And what I've been seeing then from the reaction from other folks online, a number of people, both progressives and people who are in the pro-life movement but have been concerned or even embarrassed by what Pavone has been doing more recently, who are saying this is sad but had to happen. But then there's a whole group of folks on the right who are insisting that this is unjust, that somehow he's being silenced because he advocates for the unborn. And there's no evidence that that's true. Some people who are not very accepting of this decision, which came from the Pope himself, are saying, why doesn't the Pope silence other priests, priests who abuse, or Father Jim Martin gets raised regularly? And of course, those situations are totally different. And the Vatican has removed from the priesthood other priests who continue to not listen to their bishops on the progressive side, too. So that's not a fair argument either. So... I don't know. It's quite an interesting story and will continue, I'm sure, to unfold, sadly. But what are you guys thinking? What reactions have you seen? Well, I mean, just on a lighthearted note to begin with, I guess they're going to have to change the name from priests for life to priests until the Vatican tells you you're no longer a priest. So I, I don't think that's how they originally intended their title, but there you go. On a more serious note, I too have been struck, Heidi, as you said, by some of the reaction to the news. And I've seen a lot of this sort of right-wing whataboutisms that that are complete non-sequiturs, to be perfectly honest. Somebody had said, you know, why is it that the Vatican has dismissed Pavone from a priestly ministry, and yet Father Martin, James Martin, SJ, is, is still a priest in good standing? And, and one person replied, because he is actually still a priest in good standing. That's the whole point. The difference is, in, you know, and Father Jim, who's a friend of this podcast and, and a friend of mine and does really important ministry, both in Catholic journalism, but also in pastoral ministry, is a consultor with a Vatican Dicastery. He's not just in good standing, he's in very good standing, if that were such a thing. And I think one of the things that strikes me is, again, we talk about polarization, and that's kind of a term that I'm starting to feel has become meaningless. We use it so much and it numbs us to the particular iterations of actual polarization and division. But what we see here playing out as I recognize it 
is the politicization of the church, right? So those reactions, like you were mentioning, Heidi, the people who are like very maliciously raising questions about Jim or about other priests who are in very good standing, who aren't doing anything disobedient or offensive or blasphemous, desecrating the remains of a human person. Some of this stuff is just disgusting and sick and hard to reconcile with the claims that somebody like Pavone ostensibly represents, is to miss the point that this is not about politics. This is about a theological, a pastoral, a canonical issue. And as you were saying, Heidi, quite famously, actually, most of the priests who have been dismissed from the clerical state in the United States have actually been this, the quote-unquote more progressive. So I think of former Mary Knoll priests, Father Roy Bourgeois, think of what happened with Father John Deere being dismissed from the Society of Jesus in recent years. And interestingly enough, in both cases, I think they played some kind of role similar to Pavone in, in terms of their own defensiveness, right? So John Deere will say, well, this is because I'm advocating on behalf of the abolition of nuclear arms or something like this or peacemaking. In all cases like that, that's, that's a red herring. I do think it's interesting that here in the year that Roe was overturned by the United States Supreme Court, which, again, ostensibly would have been the goal or a lead goal of what Pavone and his organization have been all about, was accomplished, that his radicality, his sort of disconnection from reality and from the aims and goals and purposes of ministerial priesthood and ministry and pastoral care, I, I think there's a certain irony that's playing out as well. So there's a lot to unpack here. David, yeah, how are you thinking about this? So I, I want to return to a comment that Heidi made about Bishop Strickland and some of the back and forth on social media. And longtime listeners will know that I, I think a lot about the role of bishops, their geographic limitations, and the way that social media plays into that. But there was an interesting exchange where someone took a snipe at Bishop Strickland, and Bishop Strickland's response was, if you think that I've veered from teaching the deposit of faith, then by all means, use the canonical mechanisms to push me out of the church. And that's fascinating on a couple of levels. One, I think that Bishop Strickland is exactly correct. It's very difficult to remove a bishop, but in case anybody wanted to do it, they'd start in Canon 192, and they'd go to a, a recent motto proprio from Pope Francis called As a Loving Mother. Those are the mechanisms that would be utilized in order to actually remove a sitting bishop. But I use this to make a larger point. This is not a process of some kind of star chamber vindictive vengeance against Frank Pavone. There was a process here to remove him. And the process occurs according to canon law. It has a written record, and it gave Frank Pavone opportunities to defend himself or to change his direction. This was not something that came out of the blue. This is the result of an ongoing process. That process hasn't necessarily been public, but it has followed the canonical edicts that are there. And I'm only scratching the surface here. I wonder if there's more to say about that. But the spin that's being given from the right wing that this somehow was a vengeance act that sort of came out of the blue and was unexpected, that is completely farcical, given everything that we know about the canonical processes. Well, David, just to add to that briefly, you're exactly right. There is a process. The fact that this was declared without appeal is extremely rare. And it, it doesn't mean, again, that this was shot from the hip. What this means is that the process has been ongoing. And the way that canon law works in these juridical processes unfold is that this stuff has to be done in writing, right? It has to be communicated. There are opportunities for appeal, and there's always a request for explanation. There's an invitation to dialogue, right? The fact that he wasn't even living in his own diocese when his bishop told him to live in his own diocese. He was a rogue agent. He went rogue. And he was doing what he wanted to do, not in no good faith, it seems, you know, engaging in the process. So I think that is important for people to realize. It's also one thing I'll mention, too, because I'd mentioned some of these other clergy who have been dismissed from the clerical state or from their orders or congregations. And one of the things that's a bit tricky in these canonical processes is that the church and the bishops are not going to comment on this, right? The process is understood to be confidential out of respect for the clergy member or the religious or whomever that's at question here. And so there's a distortion as well in the way that the narrative can be spun because Pavone can say whatever he wants and he is saying whatever he wants, trying to spin the story any way he wishes. But you're not going to get comments from the dicastery for clergy. Like, it's just not going to happen. But so I think your point, David, is really important. I think listeners need to know that this is not something that happens lightly. In fact, 
the way that the canonical process is designed, you said it was hard to remove a bishop. It's very hard to remove a priest and or a religious woman or, or male religious, in part because of the prejudice to protect the vocation of that person, right? So there are other sort of canonical impositions and penalties and punishments, we would say colloquially, that can, in, in this case, probably have been imposed. Pavone continues to ignore them, does not comply, and this is the very last resort. I think that, Dan, the term that you use there, a rogue priest, is an apt one. And, you know, unfortunately, I think we're seeing more and more of this happen where the celebrity of the individual, whether it's a priest or sometimes it's a layperson in church circles, leads them to feel like they're above reproach and whatever it may be, whether it's obedience, vow of obedience that they've taken as a member of the clergy, or whether it's financial improprieties. There were financial, major financial concerns and questions raised about Priest for Life and about Frank Pavone's involvement in that. An earlier supporter in Cardinal O'Connor, who originally ordained him, led the Cardinal to distance himself from Pavone later. As you said, this has been a long, years-long, maybe even decades-long concern and problem with him. And I can't tell you how many times people approached me as a reporter or as an editor and said, can't you do a story about this guy? It's just crazy what he's getting away with. And of course, we did do a number of stories about him over the years. But celebrity culture is something that's very hard to push back against. I mean, we're podcasters. We want to get out there and promote our podcast. As a newspaper at NCR, we want to get our important stories in front of as many people as we can. But I think we always have to balance that with the cautiousness about the dangers that individual celebrities can go rogue and the damage that can do to the organizations and to the church. Well, and I just want to say the whole notion of going rogue, part of the spin on that has been, well, Frank Pavone went rogue, but it was for the greater good. It was for the unborn, et cetera. If any of you feel swayed by that kind of rhetoric, I simply want to remind you of paragraph 1753 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church, a good intention does not make behavior that is intrinsically disordered, such as lying and calumny, good or just. The end does not justify the means. Frank Pavone desecrated a corpse, put the body of a dead fetus on the altar, and then used that corpse for social media purposes. The end does not justify the means. No matter how you spin that, or if you think that there's a greater good there, there still is an intrinsic evil involved in utilizing the dead for your political purposes. And so I think that that needs to ring out more than anything is that Frank Pavone is not an innocent bystander here to the actions of, a, of an unfeeling church. Frank Pavone instead is getting the just desserts of a long period of very focused type of political machinations and the utilization of and manipulation of innocence in this whole process. Well, the hypocrisy there is what strikes me. You see the way in which, you know, the whole language is around his quote unquote defense of the unborn and that kind of gruesome, disgusting charade that he, he performed that was, yeah, that you recounted. I don't really want to recount it again seems to fly counter to everything he, again, claims to stand for. I do think, going back to something Heidi was saying about the sort of celebrity culture, I, I think that's true. I think Strickland is somebody, you know, through social media who is riding a certain wave. I know, David, you'd mentioned this earlier. You're very interested. You've been following a lot of this as well. I think of that Wisconsin priest during the 2020 uh, Trump campaign and the videos and the sort of, again, Strickland was a big supporter of his as well. We can look to Vigano and the sort of support he's been getting from the alt-right. It's a real problem. And I do wonder about what the value is, even with those who use social media for good. There's a real tension here. 13 years ago, then Pope Benedict XVI issued a statement on the World Day of Communications where he talked about the need for the church and its ministers to be present in what he called the digital continent, that if we weren't there to proclaim the gospel in word and deed, then who would? And that's a space, virtual as it is, where a lot of people spend their time. And that's always stayed with me as really important. But he also was, was famously very skeptical about the benefits of technology, as is Pope Francis, to be fair. Because we can't engage in this stuff uncritically. It goes to people's heads, it can get carried away, and it can lead to a lot of the issues that we see play out in the case of Frank Pavone. He is one example 
And it's not. I think we just need to be clear about this. And some examples have already been named. We can think of people who are continuing to use social media in ways that are really, I would argue, very problematic. I'm thinking of a certain bishop in the state of Minnesota as well, who was recently on the Ben Shapiro show and was tweeting very favorably about that. Well, that that raises real concerns for me, given the platforms in which people choose to engage. So I think this is not something we've we've solved here. I don't think Frank Pavone, he might be an extreme example, but he is certainly not alone. Here at the Francis Effect, I know our listeners will be hearing from us talking about issues like this again in the future. And in the meantime, let us know what you're thinking about this, particularly when you think about priests and bishops and men and women religious and lay professional ministers engaging in social media and where is it taken too far? In the meantime, we'll be back in just a moment with our third segment. This is The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlank, and I'm here with David Dalt and Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Time flies when you're having fun, or at least when you're podcasting. That's right, we've reached the last episode of Season 11 of The Francis Effect. And given that we are just a few days away from celebrating Christmas in the new year, we've decided it might be good to end this podcast episode particularly, and this podcast season generally, with a look back over the year 2022 and talk about what's in store for the holiday season now upon us. This year has been an eventful one, with the social environment beginning to feel more quote-unquote normal, even if we have not escaped the pandemic context entirely. In the news, we've seen the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the continued war in Eastern Europe. The USCB elected new leadership, The January 6th Congressional Select Committee held 11 public hearings beginning in the summer and ending this week. Pope Francis has continued to reform the Vatican Curia, and so many other stories have unfolded these last 12 months. Now, as we quickly approach the transition from calendar year 2022 to 2023, we find ourselves considering what the new year will bring. So let's take a little time to look back and look ahead at what was memorable for each of us this year, globally, locally, ecclesially, and personally. When you think of the year 2022, what comes to mind? What are you hoping for as we venture toward 2023? And what are you doing for the holidays? Dan, let's start with you. Well, it has been an eventful year to be sure. I think the comment there, Heidi, about a return to something somewhat resembling normalcy has been my biggest takeaway. And there is a bit of an irony there because I had been fully vaccinated and boosted and cautious and mask wearing, even as traveling had increased again toward the end of 2021. And it was in this kind of new spirit of normalcy where academic conferences were being held in person yet again and speaking engagements and events were happening again that I came down with COVID-19 in June. So halfway through this year, I had that. I suppose it was my time. But I do think that there's a new normal. I know that's such a trite, overused expression, but it it felt different to me. I mean, maybe that's a good place to start. Like, how did this year feel? I mean, we spent so much time, I think, over the last three years, at least, talking about the shifting dynamics of the pandemic and its consequences. But I have to say, I'm really happy to see it return with the responsible caveat that it's not gone entirely, that people are still dying, people are still getting sick, as happens with a lot of diseases. And so I don't mean to minimize that. But how have the two of you felt about this year, particularly after two very heavy pandemic years? Well, I longtime listeners may recall that I spent the first several months of 2022 chronically ill. I came down with a case of the shingles and then had a relapse. And it ended up the sum total of it was somewhere between five and six months of being knocked out and recovering. I've now gotten full vaccination, and so that should never happen again. But for me, uh, this year has been a real humbling experience, realizing that in my 50s, 
I don't have the energy that I used to have and certain things that I was invulnerable to earlier are coming to get me. And so I, in the midst of the sort of lessening of focus on the pandemic, have kept my mind on limitation and kept my mind on mortality in many ways. And for me, it's been a very reflective year, a very growing year, one where I feel like even if the rest of the culture is thinking that it's out of the woods, I'm still a Cassandra saying we're nowhere near out of the woods and I'm living proof. Yeah, I can. Re- my experience resonates with, with both of yours. On the one hand, professionally, I was able to get out and start traveling and being among people. I was able to go to conferences and talk to readers of NCR. And so that was very helpful and felt like a new normal. On the other hand, it does seem that the ramifications or some of the we're still living with what happened during the, that year and a half of having been shut down. And some of that has to do with just everybody getting used to being social again, getting used to some of the losses that we experienced during the pandemic. I've hinted at this, I think, briefly on the podcast before, but my own family suffered a terrible loss this year in that my 29-year-old nephew died in a tragic car accident, and it has colored my entire year and will color our Christmas celebrations this year. I've been very struck by the Advent readings and really hanging on to the promises of light in the darkness, because it certainly has been a year of darkness for our family. What we're recording on Tuesday tomorrow is the longest day of the year. I know our parish is having a special mass for remembrance of of people who are homeless who have died, either because of homelessness or while they're homeless, thinking of how difficult that the darkness and the cold can be, especially here in the Northern Hemisphere for people. So the Christian story and the Christian message of light in the darkness and resurrection after death is something that has been very meaningful for me, but also very challenging in this past year. I think in addition to those personal and collective losses that we're talking about as a consequence of the pandemic and beyond, as you share, Heidi, and again, I know we and our listeners are with you and your family in prayer and in, in memory of your nephew. But I'm thinking as well of some of the ecclesiastical changes this past year. And, and it's something I noticed and observed in conversation as I've traveled internationally, as that has returned to become a more normal thing. And what I would use to describe this is the analog to the phenomenon known as is the quiet quitting that was all the rage at the sort of midpoint of the pandemic onward. I think we can also talk about a quiet, you know, people were people were quitting places of work. And I think what we see in the Catholic Church in the United States and abroad, as well as maybe some other faith communities, is a quiet quitting of places of worship, that people who out of safety and necessity and protocol gather for worship and in common have chosen to not come back. And I think there's a lot of work that needs to be done in the reporting. Some has begun already, but also I think in the scholarly analysis about what does this mean theologically, ecclesially? What does it mean socially? Thinking, of course, of some of these other kind of major shifts sociologically. Putnam's famous book, Bowling Alone, about the shifts in public social affiliation and how that was already breaking down in the late 90s into the early 2000s. And I wonder if this is also a marker we're going to look back on and say, well, this was a time when church attendance dropped even further. I don't know if either of you have thoughts about that either. Like, how has this year affected church life? Well, it has been good for our family, I know, to be back in person for Mass. Our parish continues to do video streaming of Masses, which is handy, like last week when we were all stuck home with COVID. But I share with you the concerns about what's happening ecclesially. I mean, if you add add the quiet quitting to the parish mergers and closing theme of things that are happening at various dioceses around the country and maybe even in the world. It does seem to be a story of what feels like contraction or decline. But then at the same time, we have the big ecclesial story of the year, at least for churchy people like us who are following it, is the whole synod on synodality and this explosion of some enthusiasm about being asked what you think and being listened to and to summaries of those conversations being fairly accurate. So there's some enthusiasm or at least some optimism that I have around that process. What about you, David? Well, so I am very grateful for the direction the conversation has taken here. We still have not returned to regular worship. And 
part of that has to do with COVID, but also part of that has to do with as we have children moving into early teenagehood, they have become very vocal about the limitations that they see in the Catholic Church for them as people who do not necessarily always identify as sort of good players in the cisgender, heteronormative, patriarchal stream of things of which the Catholic Church is the sort of reigning flag bearer right now. And so my wife and I have chosen not to push these issues, but rather to engage in our own process of synodality in our home to listen deeply to the places where our children are feeling like their current religious experience isn't meeting them where they are. And so for me, I've been very heartened by the synod and synodality because I feel like the church in general is trying to do the same thing that we're trying to do as parents. But I'm also disheartened by the real pushback, particularly by the USCCB and many who find the the synodal process to be threatening or threatening at best or at worst, just something that they can and should ignore in order to be good shepherds. So I'm not sure what to do with all of that other than to say my own reconnection with things around Christmas has largely been around, you know, we got a tree this year, we put up Christmas lights. Like the fact that I can be doing those things and be participating at that level of the ritual is about my limit right now. I realize that maybe I'm speaking in a way that resonates with some listeners out there who also are feeling similarly pushed back by by the church. If that's the case, I will say it has helped me to know that I'm not alone in this journey, and I hope it helps you to hear me say it. You're not alone in this journey. Well, just solidarity on the teenage thing. I just want parents of teenagers can relate. And so many parents, I think, of young adults also have struggled with wanting to respect the thoughts and wishes of their young adult children as they maybe make decisions not to practice the faith, or at least not in the way that that they did growing up. And I know that's a real challenge for a lot of parents. So just solidarity with you there, David. Yeah, I just want to say, as somebody who is not the parent of a teenager or the parent of any children, but as an ordained minister in the church, lay and ordained ministers are having some of these conversations as well. It may not strike the minds of many of our lay sisters and brothers and parents like the two of you that that's the kind of thing that we think about. But I've had a number of conversations with brother priests and other religious who are struggling with the perceived perception of what is important to the church, especially with regard to who's included and who's excluded. Are we really prioritizing the gospel, the values of Jesus? Are we meeting people where they are? Or is the church really only about the Bishop Stricklands of the world and the Frank Pavones of the world and the rogues as they are who get a lot of airtime and a lot of attention? Or the self-made celebrities like Bishop Barron and others? I think there's a real question, and it's a struggling question for a lot of people. I will say that the Wall Street Journal this weekend had an interesting story. I thought it was mixed in terms of the quality of its reporting about the growing disconnect between who's being ordained. And I'm always intrigued when you see a story about quote-unquote younger priests, of which I guess I still technically count, even though I'm far from young these days. The headline, the kind of key lead here is that there's a growing disconnect between the lived realities and experiences of men and women and children in the pews and these quote-unquote younger priests that are being ordained that tend to be far more right-wing, that tend to be more traditionalist as they understand it, And it's a smaller number. So as Heidi, you were saying earlier with parish closings, I think the vocation crises and the like have just made, have just compounded to make this really difficult. So I I don't know where that leaves us, but it's been an interesting experience for sure. And I think the pandemic has had a key effect on that. I guess as I look to 2023, I'm also thinking about what is going to be the future of our country. And I might just give a little shout out for NCR named its Newsmaker of the Year last week. And as is often the case, or occasionally has been the case, it wasn't somebody we were holding up and praising, but we were saying this person has been influential. And our Newsmaker of the Year was Justice Samuel Alito, who, of course, is the justice on the U.S. Supreme Court who wrote the Dobbs decision, which is one of the big news stories of the year. But it wasn't just for that decision that we named him. It was the representativeness of the ideological shift in the court and how over course of years or maybe even decades, conservatives have really basically tried to pack or pack the court by uh, changing its composition and that many of the decisions that we saw come out of the court this year, and I'm afraid that we're going to see in future years, 
are really going to change many aspects of American life, especially, I think, about voting rights and the future of our democracy. So as we look to the new year, to 2023, I think not only are some of these ecclesial issues going to be with us, but we're looking at a lot of political and social issues as well. Well, maybe that's a good place for us to switch gears just for a minute. I know our listeners want to hear, and I certainly want to hear from the two of you about what we're doing for the holidays. But before we get to that on a happy note, maybe we can look ahead into our crystal balls to see what 2023 brings or what we hope to see or what we fear might come to pass. So, David, what are you thinking about next year? So I take great solace in the students that I get to work with and the idealism that they have, but also the practicality that they bring to their ministerial vocations. I really like seeing the ways in which these students grab the concrete world and say, I'm not going to perpetuate systems of violence and I'm going to work for systems of peace. So that gives me a lot of hope moving into the new year, even though I see that the systems of violence want to perpetuate themselves. And so to the extent that we can be shoes thrown in the gears of that, I think that's a wonderful thing to the extent that we can continue to bring peace and reconciliation. I think that's a wonderful thing. My hope for 2023 is that I get to stave off my normal cynicism for as long as possible. Well, I'm not I'm smart enough not to make any predictions. I think there will be continuing to be plenty of news, good and bad for us to cover in the Catholic journalism field. But personally, I plan to try to draw more on the spiritual resources of our tradition to try to keep me sane while I'm doing that, because it has a cost, as we've talked about, the cost of the pandemic, even though we're back to some semblance of normal. We're trying to do some more with some spiritual content in our publication and on our website. And I know that when I spend more time with the spiritual resources from my Catholic faith, that I'm able to handle the good and bad news, whether it's about our church, our country, or the world. So... What about you, Dan? What are you looking forward to in 2023? Yeah, I'm looking forward to hopefully us moving further and further away from the pandemic as a regular persistent threat. I think we're on the way. I think both because of exposure and and people coming down with COVID-19, but also the high rate of vaccination nationally and globally, I think we're getting there. So that's exciting to me. I, I do think, Heidi, as you were saying earlier, I think some of the U.S. Supreme Court decisions that are going to come to us in June of 2023 are going to be, I'm not going to be happy to see them. I think affirmative action is going to be torpedoed. I think there are going to be other areas that are going to be really detrimental and consequential. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Yeah, there are lots of other things I know that are on the horizon in 2023 that I look forward to talking more about. I hope that we have good news, more good news. And maybe that goes back to your point about drawing from the goodness, the richness, the depth of our spiritual tradition. And I think that's something all three of us I know share in common that for all the naysaying and and real negativity and all that, that we're still here and we're still in the church and we're still here talking about this because it's important. It's because it's part of who we are. It's because it's um, what we believe. So that gives me hope too. And so, and yeah, I would just add, David, like you said, my students give me a lot of hope. I I've written about this, too. I think this next generation, this current generation of students in college and uh, high school, we can learn a lot from them if we're honest with ourselves and humble enough as older generations to do so. Most generations don't do that. So that's something to be hopeful about. Maybe as we're closing, what, what are people doing for Christmas and New Year's? What's on the agenda? Heidi, what's happening at the Shea Slump? <laughs> Shea Money Pit. <laughs> well, we, we're hoping to have heat again by uh, Christmas. We have somebody coming today to work our, uh, fix our furnace. No, we'll be spent. We spend Christmas here in Chicago, and then we do a little bit of travel to try to see relatives on both sides. I think we'll be on the side of our family that's grieving the loss. We'll be trying to reclaim some of that Christmas hope in the resurrection, and looking forward to Easter. I know that we're going to be doing some of our many traditions, and one that's become new is that as we head to the East Coast, we spend a day in New York City. My daughter is becoming quite the city person, so we're looking forward to that. And then I'm already, I've already booked my flight for my spring break trip, so I'm looking ahead to going somewhere warm already. <laughs> what about you guys? What are your Christmas traditions and plans? So I am going to New York to be with my family for Christmas. I'm excited about that. Not excited about the three feet of snow that they just got in the last couple of days and the frigid cold that's heading that way with this 
big Arctic blast I've been hearing so much about hitting basically all of the United States in the coming coming week. And yeah, we spend Thanksgiving as a friar community here in Chicago. And so it's nice to spend Christmas with my family. I'll help out at my home parish where I grew up on, on, on the Christmas liturgy side of things. And then New Year's, uh, spending some time in slightly warmer weather as well with friends. I always, that's always a holiday where I like to travel and be with friends that I don't get to see that often. So that's, that's exciting. David, how about, uh, as you said earlier, at Shea Dalt? So, as I've mentioned several times here on the program, my wife's parents live here in Hyde Park near us. And so holidays oftentimes are spent in conjunction of those two households, and that'll be the case for Christmas. We'll be doing some things over at my wife's parents' house, and we'll be doing some things here at our home as well. My wife's parents are members of the Episcopal Church here in our neighborhood, and so they're going to be singing in the choir at the midnight mass service there for Christmas. And we are going to just, I think, bunker down because we're going to be getting a lot of inclement weather here over the Christmas weekend. So moving and looking ahead to the early part of the new year, we're going to take a long weekend around the King holiday, something that we've done in years past and uh, go on a kind of distanced and sheltered trip to a hotel that we know along the coast of Michigan and just enjoy our time there, getting away from the city for a little bit. And so that's that's looking ahead. But as I've said in times past, I'm really just enjoying the fact that I'm enjoying Christmas for one of the first years ever. The tree, the lights, and the warmth all are doing things for me and my heart that they haven't done in years past. So I'm very grateful for that. And while I'm talking about gratitude, and as we're coming to the end of our episode today, but also our season here, I just want to say, Heidi, Father Daniel, how grateful I am for the two of you and for these conversations. And I also want to say to our listeners how grateful I am that you have been with us on this journey and that you tell others about the show. Nothing could warm our hearts more than to know that we're giving you hope and that we're giving you a sense of connection in the church. I think that's really important. One of the things that I come back to around this time of year is a very long poem by W.H. Auden called For the Time Being. And it's much too long to quote at length here, but there's one particular passage that I want to leave with you, Heidi, and Father Dan, and the listeners as we move into the Christmas season. It's when the angel Gabriel is appearing to Mary, and Gabriel says to Mary, since Adam, being free to choose, chose to imagine he was free to choose his own necessity, lost in his freedom, man pursues the shadow of his images. Today the unknown seeks the known. What I am willed to ask, your own will has to answer. Child, it lies within your power of choosing to conceive the child who chooses you. I love that exchange between Gabriel and Mary because it talks about the way in which we can use our agency to take responsibility for the world. And I get that phrase from a philosopher from the 20th century, Hannah Arendt, who said, education is the point at which we decide whether we love the world enough to assume responsibility for it. Mary, in that moment of saying yes, assumed responsibility for the world. And Father Dan, Heidi, when I see you wrestle with these big issues, I see you also stepping up and assuming responsibility for our shared world. And listeners, I see you in your interactions with us also taking responsibility for our shared world, trying to make it better for the common good, trying to live the gospel in ways that actually impact the vulnerable and the least of these among us. And that's what I want to be carrying forward into the Christmas season and into the new year. I'm so incredibly grateful for all of this. And Heidi, Father Dan, I'm so incredibly grateful for you. Happy Advent and Merry Christmas. Amen. And Merry Christmas to everyone out there. See you in the new year. Yes. Christmas blessings and Happy New Year. We'll see you for season 12. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. 
We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Thank you again for listening.